All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. Those of you who are so brave to like face Oklahoma rain, I told Nicole the worst part about getting here was that everybody that I was driving around on the interstate had forgotten that they could drive in rain. Like people had their hazards on, I did not know what was going on. So I'm glad that we all made it. And it is hard to believe at the end of tonight we'll be halfway through this study. It just feels like we began. So I hope that this study has been a source of joy and a source of encouragement for you as you study the word and as you study with others. And I pray that that is what it continues. And so we're going to pray and jump right in to tonight. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for this rain that you have given um, us, and thank you for the safety, for those who are here, for those who um, had to miss for various reasons, Lord. I just thank you for this group. I thank you for their eagerness and willingness to, to be here, to show up week in and week out. And Lord, I pray that tonight you would show us more of who you are, and that we would desire to know you, and to love you, and to obey you as we look at this next section of Second Samuel. I pray that your spirit <coughs> and your word would do its job to conform us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nicole mentioned last week that the trajectory of David's rise had almost topped out and reminded us to enjoy it while it lasted. And this week was a doozy, right? The roller coaster hit the highest high and then dropped us down to the lowest low. So what should we be looking for in this juxtaposed section of the text? Well, in way of short recap, we've got to remember what immediately preceded this section. Last week, we saw that the author had spent time portraying that David was the chosen king for Israel by documenting the Lord's favor in battles and victories and then showing God's covenant that he initiated with David right in the middle. Covenant is one of those clear threads and themes that runs throughout the entire story of scripture. We have briefly mentioned nearly all of the covenants in our study so far. And we've seen time and time again in this study and in our previous studies that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is faithful even to his unfaithful people. So over these next four chapters, we'll get to see different responses to God's covenant love, his hesed. Our English, our English language lacks the depth necessary to understand that word fully. That one Hebrew word wraps up our words of faithfulness, steadfastness, kindness, loyalty, and love. And you'll see hesed translated using all of those words throughout our passage tonight and throughout all of scripture. God's hesed, this covenant love, is steadfast and it is certain. And as we unpack this section tonight, we will see covenant love can be welcomed or scorned. Chapters 9 and 10 were still part of the upswing of David's rise, chapter 9 being my most favorite. And it's connected to the previous passage by the word and in verse 1. That's important. So we're going to read the full chapter. 
And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Macher, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servant shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. When David was at his highest, his kingdom and people were flourishing, his next thought was, is there a way for me to extend the covenant love I have been shown. We've discussed the covenant that Jonathan and David shared in previous weeks. Its longest explanation occurred in 1 Samuel 20, verses 12 through, 12 through 17, which says, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan had protected David from his father in exchange for Jonathan's house to not be cut off when David obtained the throne. Remember, the surrounding cultural norm was to take out the entirety of the previous royal line. So when Ziba was questioned by David, he made sure that David knew that Mephibosheth was crippled. Mephibosheth had been dependent on a man named Macker. Macker and Ziba will come back into the narrative in the next couple weeks. 
Mephibosheth was sent for and brought to David, where he fell on his face, humbly paid respect, and called himself David's servant. He was undoubtedly fearful of the king who could easily have sent for him to take his life. And instead, David called him by name and granted Mephibosheth abundant life. His grandfather's estates, servants to care for it, and a place at the king's table like one of David's sons. And the author closed the chapter with one last reminder in case you had forgotten that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. And one reason for that repetition is for the next time we see Mephibosheth in the narrative. Right now, it's the last word about him for a bit, calling us to remember that he wasn't a threat to the throne. He was dependent on others for his care, and he was a part of a group often included in the lists of outcasts throughout the Bible, a group not many normal kings would give any attention to. Mephibosheth recognized he was a recipient of undeserved and unexpected covenant love that David had extended to him. So how could we sum up this first response to Hesed? The physically crippled, warmly welcomed, steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. Chapter 10 can feel like an awkward next step from here. However, if we zoom out for the helicopter view, I want you to see the chapter served both as a contrast to Mephibosheth, and it also set the background and the setting for the last two chapters of our section tonight. We're going to read the first five verses of chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has David not sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Haman, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown. All right. Hanan was the current king of the Ammonites after his father Nahash had died. The Ammonites had previously been Israel's eastern enemies. We met Nahash in 1 Samuel 11 when he came after the city of Jabesh Gilead. The men of Jabesh offered to be Nahash's servants, but Nahash didn't just want servants. He wanted to shame these Israelites. He suggested a treaty where he'd gouge out their right eyes and bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh asked for seven days to see if any of the other tribes would come to their rescue. And when their messengers reached Saul, if you remember, that is when the spirit rushed upon him. He strongly called out all of Israel to come and fight the Ammonites, and he struck them down, leading in his first victory over Israel's enemies. And Israel confirmed him as their king. And though we were not given any details in scripture, it seemed Nahash believed in the saying, an enemy of my enemy 
is a friend. Nahash didn't like Saul. Saul didn't like David. Nahash could have shown kindness to David while he was on the run from Saul. And all of the scholars we read thought this had been the case. So when David received word that Nahash had died, he sent a group on his behalf to show sympathy to Nahash's son and the new king of the Ammonites, Hanan. In sending his messengers, David used the hesed term. Because Nahash had dealt loyally and faithfully with David, David would now extend the same covenant kindness to Hanan. Peer pressure and family genes led to Hanan making a big mistakes. Hanan's princes cast suspicion and doubt on David's motives. And in being his father's son, Hanan didn't just reject a relationship. He scorned it by bringing shame and disgrace on David's servants. He cut half their beards off, which was an act to humiliate them. He cut their clothes off at the hips, which would have exposed them. Hanan rejected David and brought shame and disgrace on his men. King David left Jerusalem to show care and concern for his men and told them to remain in Jericho, a city back in Israelite territory, but away from Jerusalem while they waited for their beards to grow back. And Hanan more than likely caught wind of how unhappy David was. The text said that the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. And yeah, of course, David was going to be angry. He had sent a party to show kindness and sympathy to join in grief of a friend, to continue a covenant relationship with Hanan. And Hanan's arrogance led him to outright reject David's attempt. In Hanan's response to Hesed, we see the suspiciously proud scorn covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. The Ammonites planned for war with Israel by calling in backup. The ESV referred to the Syrians. Other translations used the Arameans. These were the same. Uh, this was people from the same people group. They came out together to strike Israel first. And David heard and sent Joab and his mighty men to check it out. Joab saw that he was surrounded. So he divvied up his men between him and Abishai. Joab would take the Syrians and Abishai would take the Ammonites. Whoever needed help would be assisted by the other. So Joab attacked, the Syrians fled. Abishai attacked, the Ammonites fled. The end, right? Just kidding. The Syrians decided to regroup and try again. This was the group that was called in for backup. Not even the ones, this wasn't even their fight. Syria round two ended with David trouncing them. Huge losses, including the death of their military commander. The Syrian king's servants were forced to make peace with David, and they became servants of Israel. And Syria decided to let the Ammonites know not to give them a call for help anymore, because they were afraid. David was victorious once more. But wait, what happened to Hanan and the Ammonites? Would King David let Hanan get away with the shame and disgrace that he, that he had brought on David's men? after scorning David's loyalty, and let the Ammonites get away with those attacks? But before the author will give us that answer, and with all we've just walked through setting the scene, we'll be taking a plunge-like detour into chapter 11.
We're going to read the first four verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, we've hit David's downward fall going full speed. We're going to take these last two chapters a bit slower, because I presume you have more questions than I have answers for, and maybe a variety of complicated emotions. I'm going to start this last half by saying that I think a lot of damage has been done in certain interpretations of these two chapters. I think there's a spectrum where on one side, David is often given a free pass for his actions, totally excused, because after all, he was a man after God's own heart. And that fleshes itself out in our day with leaders committing sinful actions, not being met with accountability, and ignoring God's call to righteousness. The other side of the spectrum, though, brings some of us to a heart posture that we saw last week in Nihal, where hatred brews in our hearts and we despise David, and others we think that God might have let off too easy not believing that God can redeem certain people or situations and forgetting the mercy we ourselves have been shown. As you work through your homework, maybe it was easy to see where your emotions have you land on that spectrum. My intention as we walk through these next two chapters is to find the right balance in seeing God's righteousness and God's mercy tied together and being more comfortable with holding the tension found here than when we walked in regarding the lives of others and our own. In verse 1, we found David riding his victorious high. Jerusalem was established. Enemies were being defeated. He had a really nice house that led him to want to build a house for God. And instead, God initiated a covenant with David, promising his kingdom and throne would be forever established through a son of David's. David was extending the covenant love he had been shown to those who graciously received it and pridefully rejected it. It was springtime, time to pick back up with the Ammonites in battle after the winter break, and David was out continuing his victory streak with Joab and Abishai. No, it's not the way this story goes. He was enjoying his nice home in Jerusalem with a late afternoon nap, and when he awoke and was taking a rooftop stroll, he caught sight of a woman bathing. And since she was beautiful, he didn't look away. David sent his messengers and inquired of who the woman was. Inquired. Hmm. It's almost like we've seen him do that a time or two over the course of First and Second Samuel. 
But in this instance, he didn't inquire of the Lord for his next steps. He inquired to determine steps of his own. His messengers returned with news that she was the wife of one of David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were a group of Canaanite people, so Uriah's designation meant that at some point in his foreign family's history, they had chosen to become a part of the Israelite community in full. But this news didn't stop David. He sent messengers once more that took Bathsheba and brought her to David, and he slept with her. In a study of Genesis I did once, there was a homework question that connected Adam and Eve's actions with David's here. And it has stuck with me for years, showing an often familiar pattern to sin. So I want to show the connection to you. In Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, where Adam and Eve were together talking to the snake, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The way the author crafted these first four verses of 2 Samuel 11 seems to follow this pattern. When David saw a woman bathing, her beauty was a delight to his eyes. He desired her, his messengers took her, and he lay with her. If you have spent time in 1 Samuel, that word took should have sent a shiver to down your spine. For when Israel ignored Samuel and demanded a king, Samuel responded with a very tense and stern warning of what life with a king would look like. Samuel warned that the king would take, and he would take, and he would take. And guess what? This chosen king... This replacement for Saul, he was a taker, too. The author included the parenthetical statement that Bathsheba had been bathing from her menstrual impurity. This note was included to show that Bathsheba was not pregnant prior to David taking her. But I can't also help but see that there's a contrast being made between Bathsheba and David. Bathsheba was following one of God's laws regarding uncleanness. David was breaking one of God's laws, taking another man's wife. David heard Bathsheba was pregnant and embarked on a cover-up mission. He sent word to Joab to send Uriah home. Uriah came, made some small talk about the war, and David told him to go home, kick up his feet, and relax thinking Uriah had been away from his wife and was home for a little bit, that he would run off to cover David's mess. Instead, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and didn't go home. David asked him why. And Uriah responded in verse 11, The ark of the covenant and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. One commentator pointed out that the language Uriah used could be from Psalm 132. 
often attributed to David, probably written shortly after what we saw last week where he had sought to build God a house, a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 132, 3 through 5 says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not sleep to my, give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Uriah very well could have used part of David's own song to stress his loyalty to God and God's people in refusing his king's command. What an ironic contrast between a once foreigner to Israel and Israel's own king. David was undeterred. He invited Uriah to his table, made sure the alcohol was flowing in hopes that Uriah would drunkenly stagger home. And David was disappoint disappointed once more to find Uriah was at his door. I came across a quote to sum this exchange up. Uriah drunk was more devout than David sober. David's attempts had failed. Did he relent from trying to cover all this up? He wrote a note to Joab delivered by Uriah's own hand, instructing Joab to put Uriah at the fiercest part of the battle and then to pull back to make sure Uriah would die. Joab obeyed his king's command, which we've already seen for him was a 50-50 chance. And Uriah died by the enemy's sword at his own king's command. Joab worded his message back to David in such a way that showed he was expecting David to be angry, that more blood was shed than necessary, because more men than just Uriah died. Getting too close to the battle and then pulling back like that was, in, was poor military strategy. Joab told the messenger to close with the news that the deed was done. Uriah was dead. David didn't even pretend to be angry or upset. The complete opposite reaction we have seen previously to the death of his friends and enemies and the care and concern of his own men. His response was dismissive and apathetic at best. He told Joab to not be displeased with what had happened. Why not? Because David was pleased. He thought he had finally covered up his crimes. David used his sending power one more time after the seven-day period of mourning Bathsheba would have completed. I want to note that the author didn't include many action verbs with Bathsheba in this chapter because Bathsheba was not the one the author was concerned with. The author did include an action verb here at the end of this account. He said that Bathsheba lamented over her husband Uriah. We saw David use his kingly sending powers for good with Mephibosheth and with Hanan to extend the covenant love that has said he had been shown. David used the position God had given him and abused his sending powers to steal and to kill. In this chapter, what response do we see to the Lord's hesed? We saw steadfast love and covenant faithfulness scorned by the invincibly proud. 
Though David was pleased with Uriah's death, the last sentence of this chapter showed the God who sees all and knows all was not. Though David told Joab to not be displeased, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And it was the Lord who did his own sending to begin chapter 12. So we're going to read through the first part of 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. So Nathan approached David with what we read and quickly identify as a parable. But what David would have seen as a civilian issue to rule on. Likening David to a rich man, Uriah to a poor man, and Bathsheba to a little ewe lamb, the Lord impressed upon Nathan this illustration to get this former shepherd boy's eyes to open. David heard the entire story and reacted strongly as he laid out his own ruling of this case. A scholar pointed out David's reaction serves as proof that our sense of justice is strong when we are not the ones deserving of judgment. David was blind to seeing himself, blind because of his own sin. He had now spent a large amount of time sinning more and more to cover up more and more. And it seemed he had finally reached a point where he thought he had gotten away with everything. His spiritual eyes were closed. His heart was cold. He was the man who had no pity. So Nathan's, you are the man, was followed by the Lord reminding David all he had done on David's behalf, which brought the severity and the senselessness of David's sin to the surface. God said that David had despised the word of the Lord and done evil in the Lord's sight. This is arguably stronger language compared to the language used with Saul's downfall. Saul rejected the word of the Lord and was rejected by God. David had sinned in a much bigger way. So what would be the difference between these two kings? Nathan pronounced a series of serious judgments, divine punishments on David that we will see come to fruition in the next couple of weeks. Violence and evil would plague David's house from within. What David did with Uriah's wife in secret, a neighbor, someone very close to David, would take his wives in front of everyone. Hard, hard things were to come for David as a result of his sins. And what was David's 
reaction. I have sinned against the Lord. There are even fewer words in the Hebrew. And this should be contrasted to Saul being confronted by Samuel and immediately blame-shifting, belittling, and begging to avoid judgment and consequences for his sin. David did not fight against the judgments he knew he deserved. In fact, in Psalm 51, we're shown David's main concern was he didn't want the Lord to remove his spirit, his presence from him like God had done with Saul. Saul's main concern was maintaining his own position of power. Repentance would be what set these two men in contrast. Some of us may have initially read David's few words and thought that this wasn't enough for all the damage that he had done. I've been there myself, even as I prepared for this week. That's ultimately not for us to determine. We were told when God told Samuel that David would be the next anointed king, that man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord saw David's heart turn back to him, the same way he had seen Saul's heart turn away. The Lord put David's sin away from him. David would graciously be spared from the ultimate judgment he deserved. Death. Great mercy. Great grace. Except all those earthly judgments would still be carried out. There would still be consequences for David's forgiven sin, lest you be one that thought he got off easy. Sin always has consequences, and those consequences do not just stop with the sinner alone. They affect everyone around. In addition to what Nathan had already said, the child conceived would also die. When the child became sick, David sought God. While the child was still alive, David fasted and he prayed, laid out on the ground in the presence of the Lord. The servants expected him to be with the child. Then they were afraid to tell David the child had passed. They thought David would hurt himself. But instead, he washed, he ate, and he went to worship the Lord. Someone who had been shown such grace, such mercy, such covenant love, knew that he could approach God even though he was undeserving while facing the judgments and consequences for his own sin, he sought out the Lord. So how was David now responding to God's hesed? The sinfully crippled, eagerly welcomed, steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. I'm going to tell you straight, this portion of the text was by far the most difficult for me to wrap my mind around. Questions I'm sure that you asked swirled in my mind. Why did the child have to die? Why did Bathsheba have to hurt more for David scorning the Lord? Commentators were all over the place covering this chapter, so I went outside of them, and they too were all over the place. 
Understandably so. This is a difficult text. But there are some things that we can know for certain and take away from it. First, this is once again an example of a description of one consequence God had David experience as a result of his sin. This is not a prescription of how God handles every sin. In fact, Jesus in John 9 told his disciples that a man afflicted with blindness was not made blind because of his own sin or the sins of others, but for God to show his glory. Sometimes our limited minds can't see or understand why God does what he does. Those are times that we must cling to the attributes of his character we already know to be true from the entirety of his word, resting in his perfect holiness, sovereignty, justice, and goodness. To me, the most compelling cross-reference was seeing this part of the story through the theme of covenant. So once there was another man that stepped out of God's plans for plans of his own after God initiated a covenant with him. Abraham slept with another woman that was not his wife and had a child named Ishmael that God sent away as a consequence for Abraham's sin because that was not the son that was to receive God's covenant love. David himself was confident that he would be reunited with this child in death. He comforted Bathsheba. He laid with her, this time as his wife. And she bore him a son named Solomon. A boy with a name that sounded close to shalom. The Hebrew word for peace. Peace. After all of that. And the Lord's kindness was greater still. Nathan arrived again with a message that Solomon's second name would be Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. This son from this union between David and Bathsheba would be the immediate fulfillment to God's covenant with David. Despite David's unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Our great God can work to redeem even the most humanly complicated of circumstances. At the end of chapter 12, the author shifted back to where this entire scene began to serve as a bookend. Joab had been fighting the Ammonites and was about to take their capital city. And in his sassy Joab way, he threatened to take all of the credit if David didn't get out there and join him. David took the Ammonite city. He took the king's crown from his head. And he took a great spoil. He was back to taking the things he was supposed to be taking. All right, deep breath. We've covered a lot. And we're not quite done yet. What were we looking for throughout these four chapters? We were looking at responses to God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, his hesed. In chapter 9, we saw covenant love warmly welcomed by the physically crippled. 
Mephibosheth recognized his standing before the king, fearing his life would be taken, what he would have deserved because of the lineage he was born to. And instead, he was met with the king's covenant faithfulness, established before he was even born. His entire life was changed. He was given an inheritance. He was given a large people or a large group of people to care for him. He was given a permanent place at the table of the king. Do you see yourself there? You should. If the Lord has sought you out, called you by name, and granted you salvation, you are Mephibosheth. You deserved a death but instead have received abundant life, an inheritance to come, a community to care for you, an eternal seat at the king's table. What a beautiful covenant love extended to us by the hand of the king. In chapter 10, we saw covenant love scorned by the suspiciously proud. Hanan refused to believe the king's actions were for his good. It led to him rejecting the king, lashing out, heaping shame and disgrace on all of those around, and fighting battles he didn't have to fight. Have you been there? You know someone in your life who is still there? The king's motives never have to be questioned or doubted. You do not have to be suspicious towards him. In fact, you are absolutely dependent on the king for your removal of shame, disgrace, and sin through the covenant love he extends. In chapter 11, we saw covenant love scorned by the invincibly proud. At the highest point of his life, David trampled upon God's faithfulness towards him. He sinned in great ways, using and abusing the positions of power and the precious people God had put in his life. This would affect his present and his future, and worse, it altered the lives of those around him who he loved and cared for. Have you disregarded the covenant, <laughs> the covenant love that the Lord has shown you in the good times? Because if we're honest, this is us most of the time. We live during the good times the Lord grants us like we are untouchable. We ignore the dangers of temptation and sin and fall headlong into abusing the positions and people that God has given us for our own selfish desires instead of extending the love we've been shown. We must be quick to realize how easy it is to ignore the ways of escape and remain humble and dependent on the Lord for every step all the while enjoying the good gifts and high points of our lives. In chapter 12, we saw covenant love eagerly welcomed by the one crippled with sin. The roles from chapter 9 were reversed in a metaphorical sense. David was the lame one because of his sin, and the better king sought him out through his perfect word and righteousness, which led David to confess to God and others, and repent. Then the king showed David great mercy in sparing him from the judgment of death and met him with great grace as he still faced the earthly judgment and consequences of his sin. Is this your response when confronted by your sin and its consequences? 
Are you quick to repent before the king who continually shows you a grace greater than your sin? We should celebrate this unrelenting pursuit of goodness, mercy, and righteousness that comes after us. We don't have to cover up the sin or run from the consequences we deserve. We can take everything to the one who is both the just and the justifier. The one who can put away our sin and who graciously gives us a helper in the Holy Spirit to endure the suffering our own sin caused. David wrote a few more psalms than the ones mentioned tonight, and I think Psalm 32 is a perfect spot for us to close. Regardless of our feelings of David when we walked in, let us remember we are not too different in the responses to God's hesed in our own lives that we saw across the chapters tonight. My prayer is that this psalm would be the heart posture that we continually seek in both the highs and the lows. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your covenant love. We thank you for always pursuing us, even in our sin. You do not let us stay as we are. Let us view that as a grace and as a mercy. Let us be quick to repent when confronted of our sin. And let us see in times of good and in times of of not good, that we should be showing the love that you have shown through your son's sacrifice. Thank you for your word. Thank you for David showing us a shadow of a better king that will never fail. Lord, I pray in our groups tonight that you would be honored and glorified in our discussion, that we would be able to wrestle with hard things together and that good would come from this time. In Jesus' name, amen.